You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. So the same Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is a listener feedback episode, and I'm Nathan Gilmore, an associate professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. I'm joined on the line today by Michael Farmer, an assistant professor of English at Crown College. Michael, how's it kicking? It's kicking. Right on. And from the big, humid south, we've (laughs) also got Dr. David Grubbs, assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. Uh, David, how's the weather there? Uh, the weather outside is frightful, <laughs> um, but the fire is still delightful. Or very good, very good. Uh, <laughs> listeners, David Grubbs just related to us that he uh, traversed a, I, I believe, Texas uh, toad strangler is what you uh, referred to it as, <laughs> uh, in order to come and record with us, so we do appreciate that. Grubbs, your language has really gotten folksy since you moved to Houston. <laughs> Yep, those cowboys, we just talk that way. (laughs) (sighs) So, since this is a listener feedback episode, what better thing to do than to start reading emails? The first one came in, I mean, hours after we posted our last listener feedback episode, which amuses (laughs) me. So, this is from Alex Poulos. Here we go. Dear humanists, I just missed the feedback episode, but I wanted to write in once again to express my appreciation for the project. Uh, he says, keep up the good work. He talks a little bit about our uh, episode on the lock ace. And uh, he says, I'm more than a little delighted, but likewise horrified to know that I strike fear into the heart of David Grubbs <laughs> when he speaks about things Greek. Um, he says that uh, he enjoyed that episode. He appreciates that I and not he get to play the uh, Greek grammar Nazi. And in parentheses, he says, or Spartan. <laughs> um, now... He also says a couple of things about Nikios, and this is what I wanted to get to. I wanted to point you all to an illuminating, illuminating parallel, book six and seven of Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian War. Nikios is a central character there, first as a statement, statesman who opposes the disastrous expedition to Sicily, and then the general whose overscrupulous, cautious bearing dooms the Athenians to defeat. Mm. And so, you know, he goes on to talk about Thucydides casting this in terms of Nikios being afraid of the assembly so that he couldn't make bold, aristocratic kinds of decisions, which is, you know, pretty consistent with Thucydides' own uh, suspicion of democracy. So, he also really enjoyed the Dallas-Fort Worth episode. No. The uh, David Foster Wallace episode. <laughs> episode that had him laughing out loud at several points while he was out running. Now, the last thing he does is he suggests a trio of possible future episodes, uh, two of which I dig and one of them uh, we'll talk about because I'd actually never heard about it before I got his email. First of all, Plutarch's Parallel Lives. Uh, One could easily pick a couple and go to town. I agree. 
Ovid's Metamorphoses. Again, one would have to pick a particular episode or two, but it's a beautiful, witty poem that's more accessible than Virgil. Uh, I teach Ovid to my English majors, so I do love that text. And then the third one, Prudentius's Psychomachia, an er mm. another fascinating early Christian poem that shows how Christians appropriated ca classical literature for Christian ends. Alex signs off with uh, Hakurios Meth Humon. Pardon my pronunciation, Alex. And thank you for the email. Uh, lots to talk about there, Michael. I mean, you were not here for our Lockace episode, but uh, how about those episode suggestions? I would be more inclined to do Ovid's Heroides than the Metamorphoses. And Alex, if hmm. I'm mispronouncing Heroides, I'm sorry. But the Heroides, <laughs> as I recall, is a, a set of letters from women in myths to the more famous men in those myths. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting. Yeah, I've, I've dipped into that one. That would be a fun one. So basically I, what the toast does. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Mallory Ortberg, I think, is a big Ovid fan. Okay. Either that or I just made it up. I don't know. Um, I've never read Plutarch, and I've never heard of Prudentius. Isn't that a life insurance company? <laughs> oh, uh, Prudentius wrote um, wrote the hymn of the Father's Love Begotten, which gets sung at um, uh, Christmas time a lot. I don't know. But I've never read his Psychomachia. That one sounds neat. Yeah, sounds cool. Sometime I might read it, and we might do an episode on it. Who knows? I don't know how long it is, though. I'd have to, <laughs> before I yeah. make any promises, <laughs> you know, if, if this is an epic in 17 books, that, that might be yeah. uh, something that uh, warrants more than an episode. <laughs> mm, indeed. Well, Michael, won't you uh, give us the word from Adam Burrell? Adam Burrell, which I'm glad you pronounced, because he says it's pronounced the same as Police Commissioner Burrell from The Wire. Yes, indeed, and that's how I uh, happened into pronouncing it right the first time he wrote in. <laughs> he said he was listening to us back before we sold out and went mainstream, when Farmer was still patching in intro-exit music according to each episode's subject matter, and prior to the appearance of posers like Danny Anderson, who wouldn't know circumcision from an American werewolf in London if it bit him in the face. <laughs> if, if, the Lund if the werewolf bit him in the face, or, well, never mind. That oh, makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> he said he wrote in once before. In his last email, he gave some broad suggestions for episodes. And Michael came back stating the Wasteland might be a doable episode. I would love to hear an episode on that. But it later occurred to me that a work might be that might be more up the Christian humanist alley and less overwhelming as Elliot's Murder in the Cathedral. I hereby modify my episode request of that single work. Have either of you read Murder in the Cathedral? Years ago. Yeah, bits thereof long, long, long ago. But that one would be fun because our, our modernism and our medievalism would get together. It would be like a great Reese's Cup. It's true. <laughs> My next suggestion is somewhat more macro, shall we say. As you humanists appear to be in the empire business, I'm not a <laughs> businessman, I'm a businessman. And Nathan seems desirous of more staff for the Christian Humanist Project. I think it's time for a Christian Humanist Journal. Your listener base for all your various shows has to now be expansive enough to make such an undertaking conceivable. And what better way to exploit the labor of students than a literary journal? <laughs> I appreciate that you do not ask for money on your show, notwithstanding the obvious wealth of your listenership, as evidenced by the recent public outpouring of love and appreciation toward Grubzy. Thanks again. 
but perhaps a Kickstarter campaign? The possibility of the listeners and creators of your burgeoning network interacting on an in-depth level through the academic yet layman-accessible publication of a Christian humanist journal gives this humanist a case of hyper-salivation. Thank you again for your superb programming and your commitment to taking over the podcasting world. Your fellow Christian humanist, Adam Burrell. <laughs> we have talked about this. Have we? I know we've talked about it off the air. Have we talked about this in an episode? I don't know that we've talked about the. We, we've talked about forums, um, which that that did, did not work with <laughs> uniform satisfaction. Uh, we've also talked about a con- you know you know some uh, one, one day uh, a conference. Yeah, but, those, um, are the, those are the two dreams I have: is the journal and the yeah. conference. Yeah, I, the most of the conversation about the journal has been has been between you guys. Um, but so far, so far as uh, as I understand it, um, a journal is an enormous amount of work. Unbelievable! Um, like we tried to start one here at Crown, and we couldn't get it off the ground, even with institutional support. Right. Okay. Um, it, it, and it's not just finding the right kinds of people to submit the right kinds of writing; it's also having the right kinds of people to review that writing from an expert from a point of expertise. That is the hardest part. Yeah, mm-hmm. and while we regularly play in other people's backyards um, with their toys, um, I don't think any of us feels qualified to referee a game in said backyard, um, except within our own more narrow fields. And even then, um, you know, I, I, I'm at a point in my career where, by, where I would be more inclined to be deferential than... <laughs> Than sharpen engagement. Um, what about you guys? Go ahead, Michael. I would really like to do this, but I mean the 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 time commitment and and like Grub says, finding peer reviewers. Like if we were to do like a magazine, no problem, right? Because you don't well, still time problem, but no problem finding referees. But to 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 find the people to, especially if you're doing something interdisciplinary. Mm-hmm. It's just it's just nuts, and and it, it is a hard thing to ask somebody because unless they are an expert in the very narrow thing you're talking about. So if somebody submitted an article on Updike, I could probably review it without doing any research. But mm-hmm. I I review manuscripts sometimes for interdisciplinary literary studies, and it's a three month undertaking. You basically have to you have to rewrite the paper in some ways. You have to. You have to read everything they're talking about so that you can make sure they're representing it fairly. It, it is, it is a that is a substantial time commitment to referee a paper like that, and um, yeah. mm. and, and to find you would need at least two for every essay that came in. I just I don't know that we have the academic networking mm-hmm. to do that yet. I wish we did because I would really like to do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, we we dream too, Adam. That's that's the takeaway. <laughs> yeah. We 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 too dream, but I don't think we're we're at the stage yet where you know I have a dream can become a coming this fall. <laughs> On the other hand, I would say the conference is probably more likely because I mean the conference is a lot of work and it takes a financial commitment up front, mm-hmm. but. Um, <laughs> I think it would be easier to do than to put together a journal, particularly a journal that lasts for more than a couple issues. Mm-hmm. Am I wrong? Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. Not, I'm not saying that's coming anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and, and, and I guess my, my, 
stance towards this is first of all i'm I'm terribly flattered that people would like to see that yeah uh but i mean honestly i have a hard enough time generating content for christianhumanist.org <laughs> well, I don't. I don't think he wants us to generate the content. I think he wants us to to open the submissions from other Christian academics. Well, I know, but I mean, I, what I'm saying is, writing regularly for a website is less work than refereeing a journal. Yeah, right. yeah. That's, <laughs> and that's, I can't even do that. <laughs> well, to explain, Michael, it's it's just as much labor, if not more labor, than than. It's just as much labor as producing your original content, but it's all invisible labor. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and that's that's the yeah that's that's the issue. Yeah, I, I didn't have a sense of how hard it is to referee a paper until I had to do a couple. I didn't yeah. have to until I was offered a couple. Mm-hmm. Is it, and it, I is mean, it, it's fun, and you learn a lot of new stuff. But yeah. man, it is a time commitment. Is it like being on their dissertation committee? <laughs> uh, well, you know, it's. A sixth of the length. Right. Anyway, keep dreaming the impossible dream, Adam. Maybe maybe this will happen one day, but I would look for the conference first. Speaking of which, Grubs, Houston Baptist is a successful place. Couldn't they fund our conference? <laughs> this is a conversation that needs to happen while we're not being recorded. <laughs> <laughs> hey, why don't you call your provost and we'll get him in on this while we're recording? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so next email. I, next email from <laughs> some guy, I, Ryan Gilmore. I don't know. I don't know who this guy is. Um, dear Christian humanist, as a high functioning illiterate, I generally keep my cultural opinions to myself. However, on the recent show about the seventh seal, I was very hurt by Dr. Nathan Gilmore's comment that Bill and Ted's bogus journey is quote far inferior follow up to the film Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, and I had to speak up. Only in the lonely halls of academia would making two pretty good films in a series be considered (laughs) something worthy of bagging. Is Boga's journey rushed? Yes. Did Keanu Reeves somehow manage to notably phone in a performance in a Bill and Ted movie? (laughs) Yes. Does it have Napoleon on a water slide? No. But it's still a pretty good film. When uh, Picasso completed Guernica, were people like, yeah, it's good, but it's far inferior to the old guitarist. Get it together, Pablo. No. They were like, good job, man. Let's go on a three-day absinthe bender and get another divorce. (laughs) One of the best jokes of the Bill and Ted saga is when the boys finally defeat Death at Twister, and Death tells them that he'll let them return to the realm of the living and walks off in a huff. Ted turns to Bill and says, hey, Ted, don't fear the Reaper. And off-screen death says, I heard that. Hilarious. 99% of the population of Earth will never write a joke that good. That's worthy of praise, not your high-handed academic scorn. <laughs> Sandemus High School Football Rules. Ryan Gilmore. Ah, uh, yes, indeed. Sandemus High School Football. Um, well, man, what, what to say? I, I, I will grant that that is a fine joke. Better than any that I will ever write. Um... That said, I mean, I you know, I'm, I'm just trying to think of anything else that I could praise about that movie, and nothing's occurring to me. So, well, you I, might I, want to identify our, our our listener who wrote in there. That might help. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's my brother Ryan Gilmore. He was of course, <laughs> a uh, guest on our show. He might have been. Was he the first or the second guest host? I can't remember. Second, I think I think Gertz was the first. 
Mm-hmm. Yep, that's right. That's right. So yes, yes. So uh, you know, a a a one time guest host of the Christian Humanist podcast, and of course my brother Ryan Gilmore. So thanks for writing in, Ryan. <laughs> you know, the guy who wrote Bill and Ted emailed my wife. I did know that. Was it solicited? No, no. I think he wants to be on her podcast. I think he just wrote a book about Christian feminism or something. Oh, said he did. I yeah, and I and you know I I suggested Victoria be a, a killer episode of Christian Humanist Profile. She agreed. We're going to see what comes of it. I asked her, you know, did he say how he discovered the podcast? And he he hadn't said yet. So he huh. probably he probably found out that you referenced it ten t- ten episodes in a row or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> or two, as the case may be. <laughs> have to read between the lines with the other ones <laughs> next email yes indeed this is from brendan roberts hello to all of the christian humanists note of appreciation for your content for your podcast pardon me i stumbled on your site recently after a discussion that i had with an acquaintance who is an atheist part of that discussion addressed existentialism as an intellectual framework for religious faith i sent him the link to michael's religious existentialism pages from some years ago Mm. i'm impressed by the large range of subjects that you discuss and also the tone of your podcast uh in that you manage to discuss serious topics in a funny way the downside is that my reading list gets longer as your (laughs) podcast proceed the following might be of particular interest to michael after leaving the evangelicalism of my 20s i sought a sustainable philosophical framework of faith I was aware of existentialism, and I recall being struck by the quotation attributed to Simone de Beauvoir after the death of Jean-Paul Sartre, his death separates us, my death will not reunite us. I took that to indicate consistency and refusal to sentimentalize when it would have been understandable to do so. That search took many years and proceeded by way of courses in biblical studies and theology. I encountered John P. Myers' historical criticism of the New Testament and most influentially the existentialist theology of John Macquarie, himself greatly influenced by Heidegger, and I'll step in here. He was also the translator of the most widely distributed uh, translation of Being in Time. Back to his letter. In my view, an existentialist approach to theology has a number of things going for it. First, existentialism asserts that the existence of human beings is qualitatively different from the existence of any other beings of which we have knowledge. Humanity is not merely, quote, an unusually complicated phenomenon of nature that may be ultimately explained in the same way as a science explains the rest of nature, close quote, by Macquarie. This is a necessary response to the reductionist materialism that one often often encounters. Second, and I'm going to start summarizing here, um, existentialist philosophy doesn't shy away from the parts of existence that are difficult. Instead, it confronts them. Third, uh, existential questions in a negative sense tend to lead towards God as a source of ultimate meaning because it transcends the darkness that we talked about before. All right. Let me get back to reading his letter directly. I don't think I need to suggest any existentialist topics for your podcast unless it was to be Macquarie, as far as I can tell, is the most prominent existentialist theologian to have written in English. The Niebuhr brothers may have something to say about that. <laughs> I would, however, be very keen to hear your collective thoughts on Cormac McCarthy. I haven't had the nerve to tackle Blood Meridian yet, but I have read No Country for Old Men and The Road, and I am fascinated by McCarthy's ability to write sparse, starkly expressive prose. 
His depictions of violence and references to God would make for very interesting discussions. Thank you again for your work, and I look forward to your forthcoming podcast. Uh, Michael, this seems just groove for you. Yep. Um, I have Macquarie's Principles of Christian Theology on my bookshelf where it is set for 10 years now. I bought it when I was writing my <laughs> my master's thesis because I read one article by him that I used, and now I can't remember what the name of the article is. Uh, it is, it is one of the great shames of my theological education that I have not read Macquarie's Principles of Christian Theology. Nathan, would you be interested in doing that as a read-through next summer? Yeah. Yeah, let's do that. So, uh... Now, I, I might still be blogging through uh, Critique of Pure Reason with Peddler if we don't get on it, but <laughs> I guess this will be an uh, incentive for me to hustle up on that one. So, Brendan, you've got, you've got that to look forward to. The only McCarthy I've read is No Country for Old Men, which mm. is, you know, a wonderful book and also terrifying and horrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the line I remember is when, uh, I don't remember the character's name, but when a character gets his brains blown out into the wall it says that all his memories and feelings drip down the wall or something yeah i remember that horrifying materialist vision of what human beings are Mm -hmm. but i mean you're right it's it's he he's really his ability to do a lot with a little is is second to almost none Right. Well, and I mean, I, I think it would be an interesting one if we could get Grubbs to read it, which is an if, I realize. Uh, <laughs> it would be an interesting one to put into conversation with the Lord of the Rings as mm. far as a meditation on what it means to come home from war. Mm. I, I will point out... Uh, I'm partially trying to bait ex- Grubbs into this. <laughs> par- partially Examined Life did that, did that book a few years ago on their, their podcast, so if you're interested in academic discussion or quasi-academic discussion of No Country for Old Men, that would be a good place to go. Very good. Oh, and also, while we're talking about that podcast, listeners, uh, I'm sure I'll be announcing the heck out of it, but I'm actually going to be a guest on a hopefully soon-to-be-released episode of Partially Examined Life. Uh, Kristen Philippic, our at-times preternatural press liaison, uh, got me an invitation to go on that show. So, uh, Kristen Philippic's new name is going to be uh, Gilmore's Bulldog. <laughs> that's nice. That's nice. <laughs> yeah, she has definitely scored me uh, guest spots on podcasts I have no business being on, which is awesome. <laughs> Excellent. Next email is from Jen Zimmerman. He just came across our webpage by accident and is thrilled to discover a project close to his own heart. He is the Canada Research Chair at Trinity Western University, British Columbia, Canada, of a giant in Christian higher education. Uh, he has published on Christian humanism, sometimes under the moniker Incarnational Humanism, for about 10 years. In fact, next year, Oxford University Press will publish an edited essay collection of mine with essays by John Baer, Nicholas Wolterstorff, Storff, how do you pronounce that name, David Lyle Jeffrey, Tal Howard, and Russell Hittinger, among others, entitled Re-Envisioning Christian Humanism. My intellectual formation consisted of literature, lit theory, theology, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and hermeneutics. He just published hermeneutics, a very short introduction in OUP's VSI series. It's mm-hmm. a lot of initials. My <laughs> own major contribution to Christian humanism is a book written for non-Christian readers by, I assume this is Oxford University Press, mm-hmm. Humanism and Religion, A Call for the Renewal of Western Culture. I'm writing because I was thrilled to see such a great webpage with the kind of outlook I've been propagating for the last decade of my work. Perhaps you might be interested in some form of exchange in the future, given our common interest in promoting Christian humanism. Mm. Why, yes, we would. Yes, indeed. 
So, uh, we, at the very least, we should try to get this guy on profiles. Oh, oh yeah, no. definitely, definitely. Yeah. This, this email makes me feel the way I usually feel at the beginning of a Profiles episode, which is as if I'm standing at Mount Rushmore and suddenly, like, Lincoln or, or Jefferson, like, looks down at me and says, Hello, small person, you're doing <laughs> things well. <laughs> that, and, that, that David likes to partake of peyote in the Dakotas. <laughs> well, they are sacred mountains. Um, <laughs> Anyway, anyway, point being, this is it's 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 enormously complimentary, enormously flattering when people who are doing excellent, serious work in this field that you know that we're you know sort of in the I don't know what what what, what would you what would you describe us in relationship to what Dr. Zimmerman is doing? Well, I mean, we're in the phase of our career before we can begin a sentence. My own major contribution to Christian human and it, humanism is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I certainly don't have five books coming out on Oxford University Press. Nor do I. Yeah. yeah. Did any of us bother writing this guy back? I notice he does not mention the podcast. He talks about the webpage. And, uh, no, I haven't. I, I've been so swamped this semester that I... I always think about this email when I'm driving to and from work, but I've heard that's a bad time to write emails. Yeah, well, write him back <laughs> so he doesn't think we're just, like, icing him out. I, I've never... I never got this. What? It wasn't addressed to you, Grubbs. Oh. I got it. You know, our uh, Christian Humanist... The Christian Humanist at gmail.com forwards to all three of us simultaneously, but it forwards on different rules. So, yes. Grubbs, if the if the email doesn't contain a, a particular letter, and I can't remember which one it is, it won't go to you. <laughs> uh, and I think it's actually it's actually either the title or the from has to contain that particular letter. I'll be. How arcane. When I set that up years ago, I couldn't find it a way to just make them all automatically forward to all of us. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe that exists now. Hmm. Next email. Inside Baseball, yeah. This is from Joel Jocelyn. Gentlemen, I probably deserve Michael's response to my smart aleck email, but great episode. He's in reference. He's referring to the Tolkien episode. And two of my suggestions in a row, winky face. (laughs) A few thoughts on the question of whether Lord of the Rings is a realist psychological novel or a medievalish romance. The four main hobbits are psychologically developed and basically modern literary characters. Perhaps Gollum, too, a hobbit of sorts. The non-hobbit characters tend to be static and archetypal, with only a couple of exceptions. Aragorn, for example, is very much a heroic archetype, Theoden even more so. Frodo, on the other hand, is a well-rounded character who changes over the whole story and fits right in with lots of other 20th century novels. The hobbits are the everymen stepping out into a mythic world which is coming to an end, or at least the end of an era. So, uh, next, an interesting note about works from the deep levels of Tolkien nerddom. Late in his life, when he started adjusting lots of small details in the mythos, Tolkien actually came to see the orcs as something of a problem. He was deeply bothered by the fact that they appeared to be irredeemably evil. He kept tweaking with their origin story to fix it without changing the Lord of the Rings, though he never settled on anything definitively before he died. Corrupted elves is one possible idea he considered, but not definitively canon. Gilmore, wasn't your band in high school called Corrupted Elves? (laughs) I 
but before we changed the name to Four Main Hobbits, yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, any- honestly, the reason that I like the Corrupted Elves theory so much uh, mm. is that, on the one hand, uh, it isn't the sort of racist narrative that Farmer expressed so much uh, concern about, and rightly so, when we recorded that episode. You know, it's yeah. not as if uh, from their genetic beginnings uh the orcs are a certain thing but rather you get this idea that you know their bodies are somehow analogous to the souls of i I guess the modern killer right so i mean you know uh as you know listeners who know a bit of history know one of the great problems that the the great military machines of world war one had was that sometimes soldiers would go to the line and they would return from their switch without having fired around. So one of the great innovations of World War One, and one of the more horrific innovations of World War One, was precisely in combat psychology. In other words, how can we get people to kill each other on order? Um, and so, I mean, I, I guess because I'm aware of that, and because I know that you know uh, Tolkien was, you know, there, and, and I'm going to get this wrong. Was it Verdun or the Somme? Oh, at one of those great battles of World War One, <laughs> Tolkien was at one, and Lewis was at the other. And... I know, and I'm going to say the wrong <laughs> answer. But at any rate, World War One. <laughs> so he was at first hand privy to the changes that were happening in the psychology of warfare. No longer was this a matter of you know the honorable soul riding forth for glory and honor but it was a very mechanized and depersonalizing experience in a way that warfare had never been before. Not to say that warfare wasn't horrific. Warfare is always horrific. But it was mechanized in a way that it wasn't before. That, in my mind, is what makes sense of the orcs and the trolls and the Urukai more than anything else in Tolkien's novels. Uh, David, am I, am I going completely nuts here? No, I don't think so. Um, I, I just wanted to you know, sort of deal with his issue of what's definitively canon. Um, yeah, he, he's actually dealing, dealing with something that, uh, is one of the things I find most delightful about Tolkien, which is his insistence, even in letters to usually talk about, um, to, to talk about the, uh, middle earth and the things within it as if, they were real things that he was theorizing about on mm-hmm. the basis of sparse evidence. Okay. So, so even sometimes in his letters when he'll talk about the elves, uh, orcs as corrupted elves, or when that shows up in drafts, he, it's frequently presented as, this, this is a popular hypothesis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and not always, but th- this is one of the things I like about I like about Tolkien is sometimes even the in canon expressions of what's real in Middle Earth he phrases in the forms of him being an academic theorizing about Middle Earth as mm-hmm. if it's a real thing. Anyway, I love it. <laughs> I do I do like I do like uh Joel's suggestions about the idea of realistic novel characters in, you know, sort of bumping up against heroic archetypes. Though I'd like to push back against it. Um because at least some of the characters do grow in conceivable ways. Um, I think Gimli gets a chance to become something more than just an archetypal dwarf 
over the course of the novel, probably Legolas too, and mainly because they're forced to relate to each other in ways that their culture doesn't prepare them for. Mm-hmm. But but I, I, I think Joel's good. I think that's an interesting way to look at it. Very good. You want me to go to the next one, Michael, or you want to weigh in on Tolkien? Uh, next email. All right, very good. <laughs> this is an email from Mean Row. Dear Christian Humanists, I was wondering if Michael Farmer could say a few words on his take on Lockhase. In particular, what Tillich says about the dialogue in The Courage to Be. It seems that Tillich seems to say, in light of existential courage of resisting non-being, rather than Lockhase's conclusion being misguided, courage is indeed the source of all virtue. Also, I just wanted to second David Grubbs' opinion on Taco Bell's delicious chili cheese burrito, one of my favorite guilty pleasure foods. Thanks, Mean Row. David, did you talk about Taco Bell at some point and I forgot it? <laughs> I, I did. I did talk about Taco Bell. <laughs> oh, thank God. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I honestly have no memory of that. But anyway, the, the more serious <laughs> question, Michael, talk to us about Tillich and Plato. Yeah, the way I read, and it's right at the beginning of The Courage to Be, um, which, you know, Tillich may also be the greatest existentialist theologian to write in English, although he also wrote in German. Um, <laughs> it's, I, I, think, I think our listener is right. He says, uh, courage is indeed the source of all virtue. But it goes even beyond that, because I think what Tillich is saying is courage is like the precondition for living in the modern world at all, without falling into just utter despair. Mm-hmm. And he says, in particular, and I've got the book off the shelf to read it, um, the ethical question of the nature of courage leads inescapably to the ontological question of the nature of being. And the procedure can be reversed. The ontological question of the nature of being can be asked as the ethical question of the nature of courage. Courage can show us what being is, and being can show us what courage is. So existence itself is courage, and thus it would have to be, I would think, the seat of all the rest of the virtues. If it's, if not exactly synonymous, um, very, very closely related with being itself. Yeah, and, and Michael just provided some evidence of why existential philosophy is to be read off the page and not heard out loud. Because <laughs> that, that sounded like Busta Rhymes on my headphones. <laughs> hey, and you know what? The courage to be was lectures. <laughs> okay, so I have no auditory processing. <laughs> well, you know, the thing that blows me away is you read like Derrida, almost all of Derrida's important essays or lectures first. Man. And you just think, what, what sort of crazy person could possibly follow this? <laughs> Next email. Oh, this is me. Uh, this is from Marissa Crofts. Mm-hmm. My name's Marissa Crofts, and I graduated with a degree in English this past May. Until recently, I've been pining to get back to school. Nostalgia is a killer. Happily, one of my professors recommended your podcast to me, and yeah. after I finally got around to listening to one, my postgraduate nostalgia faded into what school really was. Late nights, bad food, and long essays. I'm not sure how to take that. <laughs> <laughs> Also, I would love to know what professor recommended the podcast. Yeah, I really would too. Yeah. Well, well, I've been email, meaning to email you for a while. I obviously didn't get around to it until today, the day you dropped an episode on Faustus. Thank you. I was planning on suggesting Faustus as an episode idea, but you all beat me to it. A question. Have any of you read Tom, Tomas Mann's Dr. Faustus? After finishing nearly half of it, I've set it aside because I am A, lost, and B, bored out of my mind. <laughs> That being said, if you guys think it's worth finishing, I'll finish it. Have either of you read Dr. Faustus? No, it is on my uh, Amazon wish list, but I actually do not have a copy. 
Marissa, huh. if you'll buy that for Nathan off his Amazon wish list, he'll talk about it. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> you, you buy it off my wish list, I'll block through that sucker. <laughs> Some episode recommendations. Wendell Berry's Mad Farmer poems. Ooh. John Dunn. Uh-huh. Yeah. How have we not done a Dunn episode? I don't, don't know. N.T. Wright, <laughs> Wright and Critical Reason. Woo-hoo! Realism. Critical Realism. Yeah, uh, there is a Profiles interview with N.T. Wright. It's going to be dropping here in just a couple weeks. Woohoo! Friend of the show, N.T. Wright. Oh, yeah. Niebuhr's Christ and Culture. How have it's, we not done that? It seems weird. Yeah. And uh, Southern Baptists. Hmm. Oh, the trouble I could get into. I'm, I think we'd all get oh, into Oh, the trouble, trouble I could get into. <laughs> yeah, point taken. David and I are both apostate. Well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm one again. Oh, that's right. That's right. You're at uh, HBU, the sponsor of the upcoming Christian Humanist Conference. <laughs> no to Bene. They didn't actually say that. Ask him, by the way, David, ask him if, if they'll pay for it, but we can have it in a cooler climate. <laughs> Tell him I'll wear a T-shirt. <laughs> well, will you give us money to have a conference somewhere else, please? <laughs> back to Marissa's email. Thank you, thank you, thank you for all the work you put into this podcast. I started my first full-time job a month out of college, and your conversations have helped me preserve my sanity while I stood in front of a computer nine hours in a, nine hours a day in half in a half cubicle, surrounded by middle-aged men and women who love to talk only about their children. Mm. You're welcome. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Good essays, uh, good, good, good topic suggestions. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, Christ and culture. We definitely got to get that rolling at some point. And done. Yeah. We did a Herbert episode. I guess maybe that made us That's feel right. like we didn't have to do done. Yeah, point taken. But I mean, I could imagine a Dunn episode, a Herrick episode. I mean, Marvel. Yeah. That would be Marvelous. <laughs> oh. Oh. <laughs> Next email, please. Uh, okay. So, this is by Josh Niz- Nisley. Nisley, I believe. Nisley? Nisley. Or, oh, do I, did I remember that wrong, Michael? Uh, there's no E between the S and the L. Okay, but I know that he corrected our pronunciation once, and now I don't know if I'm doing the corrected one or the uncorrected one. I'm Josh sure I don't know. says... <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I recently read uh, Shusaku Endo... Why is it that I feel more comfortable, more comfortable saying Shusaku Endo than I do Josh last name. Anyway. I'm sure, if it makes you feel any better, I'm sure you're subtly mispronouncing Shusako Indo too. And see, I can't even, <laughs> I can't even unsubtly pronounce it. Shusaku Indo. Yes. Josh. Uh, I recently read that novel, Silence, and found it deeply moving and troubling. Gilmore referenced Indo's novel several episodes ago. I think it was in the David Foster Wallace episode. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Peddler. Dawson, I think he means Peddler, um, yes. referenced Silence directly in the Seventh Seal episode. Since it seems to be on your minds lately, how about going beyond references and dedicating the entire episode to the book? Have you read that, David? I've not. I have. I've taught it several times. So Okay. Maybe maybe next time Grubbs is out of town. We yeah, can we could rock a point one. Peddler. Oh, yeah, or get Peddler. Yeah, that yeah. would be even better. Anyway, I, I, would lo- I would love to I'd love to hear about it. Um, it's it's set in a period of Japanese history that I'm really interested in, so yeah, I'd love I'd love to hear that. What we should do is is read that and uh, the Power and the Glory by Graham Greene, hmm. which hmm. is kind of the same book in a weird way. Huh. So thanks again for all your work. My wife and I moved to Jerusalem early this year. Neat. 
hmm. because of work, and this show has been an oasis of familiarity in the middle of a whole lot of change. Just in case you keep track of how far the Christian Humanist Network reaches, you can add Israel and Palestine to the list. All the best. Yeah, I hate to admit it, but that was the first thing I thought when I read this email. I, I'm like, yes, we've got listeners in Jerusalem. Stay safe, Josh. <laughs> yeah, seriously, seriously. That That's cool, though, right? Um, you know, it, it, however, however much time passes, uh, I don't think that will ever stop being cool for Christians. Yeah, well, we had an email earlier from uh, Australia. The the I've, yes. for, I've already forgotten his name. Sorry, <laughs> Brendan. Brendan. Yeah, Brendan. He's from from Australia. I know we have listeners in we had re- listeners in Russia, but I think they've come back to this country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's always very exciting. I know we have a listener in Africa. Well, Katie was reading uh, was reading me some emails that the Christian Feminist Podcast got recently from uh, the UK and the Philippines. Cool. So, yeah, very, very cool. Man, oh man, that's just some neat stuff. Uh, but yeah, I mean, definitely, David, I mean, or Michael and David, why not? <laughs> uh, I think that a uh, silence episode would be good. I would have to brush up on it. It's been several years since I've read it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm, I'd definitely be down for doing that episode. Maybe we can do it when Grubbs is out scouting cooler locations for the HBU-sponsored Christian Humanist Conference. Now, that's a throwback. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Uh, Yeah. Well, at any rate, uh, those are the emails that we plan to do today, and we covered them remarkably quickly. Uh, So that's where we're going to wrap up today. If we missed your email, whether you wrote us on Facebook or a blog comment or an email, please email let us know. We'll put you in the next episode. Of course, you can write to us at uh, thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. That's probably the most reliable way to get on there, but I'm going to be saying that here in a minute anyway. I want to go ahead and thank uh, Michael and David for a good episode today. Uh, What shall we discuss next week? We will be talking about John Barth's postmodernist manifesto, The Literature of Exhaustion, and also its sequel, The Literature of Replenishment, and also a very strange little Barth short story called Title. Hmm. Hmm. Well, exhaustion is a uh, fitting theme for this time of the school year, (laughs) so I'll look forward to that. In the meantime, good listeners, if you do want to write in, get on this show next time we do one of these listener response shows. You can shoot us a message at uh, thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can message us on Facebook. You can, well, I mean, this won't get on the show, but you can leave a review at iTunes, which will draw more listeners our way, which is always what we want. And, of hey. course, you can find us at christianhumanist.org, uh, where I am going to go ahead and make a public promise here so that I am accountable for it and I have to do it. I'm going to start posting uh, weekly Bible posts again, which I stopped doing a while ago. Cool. Uh, but I feel like I ought to start that up again. So, ChristianHumanist.org, look there. So, here at the end of this listener feedback episode, this is Nathan Gilmore in behalf of David Grubbs and Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger. <laughs>